0: This is the DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School. I'm Max Gaston. Today's episode is going to be a bit different. Last month, Notre Dame Law School's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, in collaboration with the Notre Dame Black Law Students Association, hosted a panel discussion on DEI in the sports and entertainment industry. The panelists for the event were an elite group of black alumni from Notre Dame and high-ranking executives in the sports and entertainment industries. They included Max Siegel, CEO of US Track and Field, Jonathan Bean, Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the NFL, Indidi Massey, who's Vice President of Workplace Culture and Diversity Initiatives at CBS Sports, Rocket Ishmael, former wide receiver for the NFL, and Mickey Carter, executive vice president of U.S. Networks Distribution at Paramount Global. What you'll hear on today's episode is the conversation that took place during the discussion between these panelists, which was moderated by Jackie Wilson, chief DEI officer for the Brooklyn Nets, New York Liberty, and the Barclays Center. The panelists will talk about their individual experiences as people of color climbing the ranks both at Notre Dame and in the sports and entertainment fields. They'll also talk about the current challenges to diversity and inclusion that the sports and entertainment industry is facing, and how concepts like the Rooney Rule, which requires every NFL team with a head coaching vacancy to interview at least one or more diverse candidates before making a new hire, are impacting not just diversity in the NFL, but also in other areas of sports and entertainment leadership. Without further ado, here is our sports and entertainment law discussion with our amazing group of panelists.
1: Good evening, Notre Dame. Um, So before we get started, to let you know, there's a QR code. If you scan the QR code, you can send in questions, and so we'll be reading those questions uh, later on in the presentation. so when I first found out, you know, who was going to be on this panel, I was extremely excited. And the first thing I thought about was, what was the most professional way for me to get selfies with all of the people <laughs> that, <laughs> that are up here? And then Max and Jakeem asked me to moderate, and I said, oh, I'm going to get all the photos. I see all the cameras out here now, so this is, this is perfect. So I'm excited, excited to be here. And so I'm um, here on behalf of Indy Law School in and, and BALSA, and so I want to start by, by speaking to our BALSA alum um, that are here. Uh, Notre Dame feels and looks totally different um, than it did at least when I graduated 15 years ago, and I mean, yes, we have new buildings, but I mean, Notre Dame looks totally different um, than the school that I, that I graduated from, and so Ndidi, I'll start with you. Um, Talk to us a little bit about your experience as a black law student here. What were some of the the challenges? What were some of the the wins that that you experienced then? And how do you see that changing uh, with the way that campus is set up now?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's always great to come back. It it feels like home. Um, Hopefully it will feel like home for forever. Um, I love that it looks different. I mean, it, it brings me incredible joy because it wasn't so easy when I was here. Um, I, I was able to go to school with, with these two gentlemen here, and they were a year ahead of me and really sort of put their arms around me and helped me. But there were so few of us, so if we didn't do that, we would have been really lost. Um, but listen, my job and my passion is DE&I, and, and representation matters, opportunities matter, access matters, and I think the only way you do that is with intention. I mean, we have, you know, we're a black dean. I mean, amazing. Um, and just sitting and talking to some students a little earlier today, just it really gives me inspiration and hope. And, um, you know, listen, I was supported here. Our numbers were, were small, but we were supported. We were definitely family. We helped each other. I mean, it's crazy. I, we're a little older than 15 years because a little farther back, I'm not going to give the number, but um, we're still friends. We still support each other. And, um, and I think that that's something that I would encourage all of you to do is you never know, you never know, you know, what people's future careers will look like. Stay in touch, uh, be supportive. Um, and I'm happy. I mean, I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm, I'm inspired and I'm thrilled that our law, that the law school looks different and it's, it's better. Listen, representation matters, diversity. There's data that shows that diversity produces better product and it's how it should be. So I'm happy.
3: Nice. Mickey? You know, I, I'm overwhelmed when I come back. It, it really feels like that I'm in a different place in terms of not having the same uh, ability to get from point A to point B. Uh, and that's cool, because it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it and it shows progress. I really have to echo some of Ndidi's comments. Um, we were small, um, but we did feel, at least I felt, uh, supported both by my fellow students uh, because I think that's what having small numbers hopefully does for you, uh, and it certainly did that for us. Uh, but also by the school, you know, I, I was telling a story um, to uh, to a few people earlier. Uh, we were really small, and it was noticeable, and we knew it, and then the school knew it. And so we, you know, spoke with the administration about that issue, and uh, we wanted to understand since we didn't handle admissions what they thought were some of the issues. And they were honest with us about what they thought some of the issues were. And then we were honest with them about what we thought some of the issues might be. And we developed a plan for how we could work together to try to attract more, more uh, African-American students. Um, and, we, and we literally did that. And I mean, I was, I was amazed to hear that you know BALSA is the largest membership that it's ever had currently. Um, that's super encouraging. I can also say that over the years, we've had classes that have been in excess of 15 African-American students, and things kind of can go up and down, right? There are cycles. So I also, uh, I'm very cognizant of the fact that once you get to a certain point, you, you know, we you slash we haven't made it because just as easily uh, that you climb that mountain, you can go right back down again. And so it's something that, that hopefully there's a sense of pride over having accomplish a certain level of change diversity and hopefully there's a a sense that there's a diligence needed in order to be able to maintain that so uh but i'm I'm thrilled it's always great to talk with current students and to hear about what the experience is like now makes it feel a little old uh but you know that's just that's just one of those things i would rather be getting older than the alternative so
1: you know it's, it's interesting both of you talked about having small numbers but Feeling supported and and being close knit, um, Judge uh, Briscoe Clark, who's in here now, like we talked about this before. Um, you know, when we were here, the numbers were so small that Balsa, Halsa, Alsa, like were all the same group. Like we just had different different agendas. So <laughs> Tuesday was Balsa, Wednesday was Halsa, but it was the same twenty people going going back back and forth, um, and we were a close knit group. And so what I, what I like is. With the numbers being bigger, the group still feels close knit. It still feels like family. It still feels like support. And, you know, Max, like you, you liked it so much, you, you did this twice. So you're, you're a double domer. So I'd like to hear about your experience, you know, coming from, you know, as an indie undergrad and then how that experience either differed or, or was the same uh, when you came to law school.
4: Yeah, so, so in all honesty, I struggled as an undergraduate. So And I left here not really knowing what I wanted to do, and I took some time off. Uh, and so when I came back to law school, you know, three years out of Notre Dame, all the things I probably hated about the school were the things that kind of guided me as I started my career and all the values that I learned. Um, it's funny, we were standing backstage, and I have a, a picture of Rocket and Dee Dee, Mickey and myself, and Kevin Warren at his house when we were students. And we're all still friends here today. And I think that, you know, the bond that you form when you're here, um, the values that you learn when you're here are things that stick with you your entire life. So when I came back to law school, it was with a purpose. And I think that I remember Dean Link saying us our first uh, our first meeting that we build Maseratis, that everyone has the unique ability to make a contribution to society if you work together uh, and understand what your value was. And I was halfway skeptical about that, but I find that to be entirely true, um, that if you go about your work and you try to impact your organization or your industry and ultimately culture, you know, you get a lot of reward out of your job. Uh, What I will say is, you know, Notre Dame forms a different kind of lawyer, and I think one with substance and credibility. And and I have to say, for me, I'm incredibly proud that Dean Cole is here. Uh, Not only does representation matter, but we have someone who is an incredible scholar who has credibility and it's transforming the law school right in front of our eyes. And so for me, uh, my law school experience was incredible. And as I tell a lot of people who come here, the network that you form and the support that you got here, it continues on professionally. And I don't care what I'm doing. If a resume comes across my desk and someone has a Notre Dame affiliation, I'm going to stop and take a look at it. So law school was tremendous for me, and I'm glad to see uh, that we're continuing to grow and diversify. So I'm going to sw- switch gears a,
1: a little bit. Um, and Ndidi and John, I, w- I want to talk to you guys about, about DEI um, in, in sports. Um, we are all operating um, in a relatively new f- uh, term that it, that, is being, that is being used, and it means a lot of different things at, at different places. And so, Jonathan, I'll, I'll start with you, because you were doing DEI back before it was DEI, back when it was just like some, some don't feel right. Some some don't feel right. So, how like let's talk a little bit about about your journey. Like, how did you get into the the DEI space, and what does that now look like at the NFL?
5: Yeah, that's uh, a. Can you all hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Thanks for that question. I I I love that because it is has changed. It has changed quite a lot. Uh, When I started, and I started in the two thousands. And I think it's fair to say that DEI was not a priority. It was not considered a priority in a corporate environment. It was not considered a priority in government. It was not considered a priority in philanthropy. It was not considered a priority in nonprofits. Um, much of it was EEOC driven. Mm-hmm. It was compliance oriented. Uh, for me, uh, I kind of fell into it based off of my passion. I've always been someone that had a strong belief and, in the equality of all human beings, and that came from my parents. Um, and so with that, I also wanted to have a career that I felt was impactful. So initially, I went to law school. I was doing legal work, uh, being a consultant at PwC, but I just wasn't get, being fulfilled through that kind of work. Um, long story short, I ended up being the head of strategic planning at a company called Johnson Controls. And um, and then my wife told me that we were moving from Michigan to uh, back to New York. And so that provided an opportunity to look at things a little bit different. This was after 9-11, really started reevaluating. And I said, um, I know that this space is not one that gets a lot of attention but it's something that I cared about. And so I was started the first ERG at my company. I was part of the culture campaign. And I said, I don't know what it is, but I just wanna go into it. I wanted to see what opportunity was. And so I, um, when, I when we moved back to New York I started looking around. I got a transfer, but I really wanted to try something different. And uh, I started reaching out to different people and 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 then, again, my, my wife comes back and she says she knows somebody who knows somebody. And then that somebody is somebody named uh, Lisa Garcia Quidos, who unfortunately has passed away. But she was the head of philanthropy, diversity, phila- foundation, a bunch of other things at Time Warner at the time. And this was she was doing groundbreaking stuff. So the stuff that people are focusing on now, she was focusing on that in the early 2000s. And she wanted somebody with a business background. And I wanted to get get away from just the business thing and, and wanted to focus on how I could help people and make an impact. And we found each other in, in like five or six interviews later and, and memos and whatever else she put me through. She eventually, uh, she did call and she said, all right, I got good news, bad news. Um, bad news, you didn't get the job. Good news! I'm going to create a job for you. So, you, <laughs> so you you didn't That's get the diversity job, but I'm going to give you a philanthropy job. I said, well, let me. I, I wasn't really thinking about that, but um, so at, long story short, uh, I applied for that. I ended up getting that job three months later. The person that got the diversity job gets let go. It wasn't working out. She so said, guess what? You get both jobs. <laughs> so, so this is, a, I think, an, in life you know, following your passion and all that, but also a little bit of luck along the way and this, and then around this time is around the crash of 07. Um, so it was very difficult period. So I was like, am I going to get let go? Cause again, this was not prioritized. Um, I did not, uh, we were able to build up DEI from scratch. Time Warner was doing things that I think a lot of other organizations are not doing today. If you look at discovery Warner media, I think that's what it's called now. uh, uh, they've got around 50 people on that team. Uh, it just goes to the commitment. And I'm proud to say that, hey, when when there was like one person, uh, me and Lisa, we were able to get to the place where the company felt it was that important and uh, fell in love with the work. Fell in love with the work. I like working with people. I, I'm a strategist by nature. Um, I always think there is a solution to a problem. And uh, doing the work and and showing leaders that this is something that's important and that can lead to optimal performance. I always say diversity and inclusion leads to CIO, CIO creativity, innovation, and optimal performance. With that said, uh, I ended up having a wonderful eight years there and I've been doing it doing it ever since. And in the meantime, it went from compliance to then a big focus on diversity and really drilling down on what diversity is and trying to really uh, push that. But there, certainly, there was no inclusion, there was no equity, there was no belonging, there were no other words, it was just diversity. And you look at it today, right, and there's a lot of things that led to it. Of course, we can talk about the period of Floyd, but there was a lot going on way before that. So it's evolved. People have become much more educated and aware, and they see that there's the value. A lot of research that has occurred that really tells you the true benefits of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, and people are bought into it, not only within the United States but also globally. I've worked for global organizations as well. There's a sense of urgency behind this, but I, I, I temper this. So it's it's wonderful. It's it the platform is at a different place now. Uh, people like Ndidi are being hired at a very senior level to actually be able to make a difference to be empowered to have resources to actually do something and to be engaged with the senior leaders at the company but let's not be comfortable because this sense of urgency needs to continue just as quickly as, as as we're getting this it could be taken away so let's make sure every day that we're focused on it but that, you know to me that's that's where we're at
1: I mean that's a well thank you for that that answer first of all that's that's very insightful and one of the things that that you said that i want to hold on to for a second was that they wanted someone with a business background a lot of times when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, people automatically think of it as an, an h r role and some of some of what we do touches on on h r but that is not really what that is and so Dei and I were talking about you know, having a business background and people coming from corporate, coming over to, to DEI. Indeed, can you tell us a little bit about, about your journey and, and how does it look at, at CBS
2: Sports? Yeah, sure. Um, so my journey, I think really starts my background. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell stories like you did. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't tell stories like he does. But, um, <laughs> so I, I was an athlete. In college, I played softball at Northwestern. I grew up as an athlete. I grew up playing with boys, which made me good, um, and girls. And I knew I wanted a career in sports. And so I always had this burning, burning desire, and um, question, and fight on how come I don't get an opportunity to play in the NFL? Like, why not me? Because I'm a woman, because my sport is, you know, there's no professional. There is softball now. I mean, it doesn't really pay. Um, but I have a fire, like like Raghib has a fire. And I was always mad. Like, I want that opportunity. I want that opportunity. I'm the odd person out. Um, When I'm in law school, you see, you know, I was with Mickey and Max and Kevin Warren. I wanted to be in sports, law, and business just like them. But I never saw people like me. There were not women doing this let alone black women. Um, and then on top of it, I'm mixed. I have a white mom and a black dad, and and I'm caught between races and genders and saying like, I just want to be in sports. And I want to fight for those who don't have opportunities. So just naturally the whole diversity thing, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whether it's LGBTQ plus disability was always sort of in my mind is there are a lot of us who don't fit in a box for whatever reason. And we deserve the opportunity that everyone else does. And quite frankly, I think it's one of my superpowers. I think it makes you unique. It makes you stand out. So to me, I'm like, I want to own it, but I need others to see that. I need others to give me opportunities to, to allow me to have a voice at the table. So that's sort of like the burn inside of me. Um, how it happened was I was working at ESPN and, and I was, um, I sort of oversaw our high school. I was the number two in the growth of our high school, the high school business at ESPN. And we were able to, um, I didn't really want this, this project, but I oversaw, um, we had this sort of high school Olympic jamboree, if you, if you call it that, at like the ESPN wild, wide world of sports. And part of that was the Under Armour All-American football game. And so, you know, if ESPN did their job right and truly identified the best high school football players in the country, then those should be the top college football players in the country. And those should then, you know, have an opportunity to the NFL. So when I was um, working with our team on programming, I thought, well, let's do some life skills and let's do some community stuff and let's talk to these young men. And I called a, a counter, or not a counterpart, but a friend at the N.C.A. and a friend at the NFL, brought them in and we created some really great programming. And so it was kind of life skills, kind of community engagement, kind of DEI i before it was, you know, DEI and i um, it was fantastic. We We really schooled these young men and um, at the end of the day, I left ESPN simply because they moved my position from New York to Bristol, Connecticut. My husband told me I could go to Bristol <laughs> and that he and our sons would stay in New York. <laughs> so clearly I left ESPN. Um, and when I left ESPN, I took some time off to think, like, what do I really want to do? And my two colleagues, um, and one is still at the NFL and the gentleman at the NCAA is no longer there, basically called me and said, you should go into DEI. And I was like, DEI? I I was like, come on. And they're like, no, when you did this, you lit up. When you worked with us and these high school kids, you lit up. You already have relationships. You know, you're at ESPN. You have relationships with the NFL, with the NCAA. And essentially both of them handed me projects. They said, Come work with us and learn from our DE&I experts. Like, you got to learn. And um, and again, I went to them and I was like, DE&I, me? And they looked at me, they're like, black woman sports, you're always the only one in the room. You are DE&I. Um, but again, you know, sort of the law school in me and the education in me is I, I'm not DE&I. And I think this is one of the problems. You can't just put a person of color in the position and expect them to succeed it's a it's a trade you got to learn it right so i went and did some consulting at the nfl and did some consulting at the nca and i learned and i learned and i learned and i learned um and then you know i actually had to go back and get a real job for a while um so i did some i also was a, a lawyer at um abc news negotiating deals but I, then I got an opportunity with this organization called Rise, which is the Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality. Steve Ross, who owns the Dolphins, was look, was looking to create this nonprofit to very specifically use a sport as, as a vehicle to advance race relations. And he was looking for a leader. And Steve's pretty picky, as most owners are. And he was looking and looking and looking. He was interviewing. He interviewed corporate America. He interviewed nonprofit. He interviewed for like six months. Didn't like anyone. And my particular colleague at the NFL called me and he said, you should meet with Steve Ross. And I said, yeah, okay, multi-billionaire owner, of course I'll meet with Steve Ross. <laughs> right? So we literally had dinner and the next morning he hired me to create this nonprofit for him. Um, so the non, I mean, it was f- my first time to jump into DEI full time with um, someone behind me. Who was at a very high level, who had the money, who had the power, who had the connections. Um, probably one of my, my biggest accomplishments and most difficult tasks was to create this board. And Steve thinks big. Steve was like, I want the commissioner of the NFL, the commissioner of MLB, the commissioner of NHL. Go make it happen. You know, the president of ESPN, the president of CBS Sports. And wow, it, it, it was, it was a chore. And I made it happen. So all of those commissioners are on the board. Now, I pulled in my friend Max on the board. (laughs) Um, And and again, he fit it, obviously, president of USA Track and Field, Um, pulled in a friend of mine from Northwestern who was the chair of the board of the United States Tennis Association as well, because we can't have a DNI board with all white men. Right. I mean, that's not not happening um, and, and quite frankly, they deserve to be there, right? They're there with the commissioners and we're, we're thinking large scale on D and I. So that's really, that's really my, uh, my experience in a nutshell. And I was able, I'm lucky enough and blessed enough to be able to roll in this experience, this passion into my new role, um, which is a year and a half at CBS sports. And, and I'll just say that I was a journalism major undergrad. So it's really for me, you know, it's where I, I should be. Um, right now and instead of the business background at CBS, they loved that I was a lawyer. They were like, and you're a lawyer? Like bonus, 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 bonus. How do you understand diversity, equity, inclusion without being a lawyer, without having some understanding of how of legal a legal background? So again, I I'm super blessed to be in this role. And and I agree with you, Jonathan. We need we need to keep it going. Um obviously there was a big, you know. Burst after the murder of George Floyd, but we need to keep this moving forward. And, and I think that I'm also love my job because I'm positioned correctly. I report directly to our chairman. So I have a DNI lens in every single part of our business. So I'm not in HR. HR is my partner. Um, and I have resources because I think that's the key. How you're positioned and if you have resources. If you don't have those, it's pretty difficult.
3: Please quickly. I love everything that they've, they've said, and obviously they are very accomplished DE&I professionals. But I was sitting here thinking about the fact that, you know, part of the reality is that they are, they are, you know, they have a lot of experience in, in the DE&I space and do a fantastic job trying to help move organizations forward. Um, but really all of us hopefully work in DE&I every day. Right? I mean. You know, from the point that you leave law school, you know, while you're in law school at the point, certainly that you leave law school and you go into your first job. I mean, hopefully this isn't your experience. You know, it was certainly mine. I know it was many of ours, 150 years ago, back when we were in the same spot you all were in, where we were, you know, walking into settings, whether it was at summer associates or our first law firm jobs or uh, organizations we were at where we were the only right and so while you don't have power to make policy changes at that point you aren't hiring you aren't in a leadership position just your presence there is helping to advance and to forward a dni agenda based upon just how quickly that you find your own voice by your actions every day uh how you do your work uh you are setting an example and you're and you're helping to uh you know, change people's minds and to really help people gain understanding that they may not have. So much of the of the problem uh, problems that I've seen in the space over many years working in corporate America is just ignorance. Um, And so you start there and then you move into higher positions where you do have an ability uh, to make some choices, make some decisions, find a voice to have dialogue about issues that then starts to make some changes. It's not systemic changes necessarily at your company level that I know that these guys do, but you know, if you have enough people within an organization who are doing DE and I work every day, then that's what helps move the organization forward. Uh, And it can't just be people of color
4: doing that, right? Yes, so... um... Couple things. So, so Mickey and I were in um, academic advising for student athletes when we were here, and Rocket was our student, and he hasn't changed a bit. Same stories. <laughs> so, so he was amazing then, storyteller still is now. Um, and indeed, he was angry in law school. <laughs> um, I just, I'm just i going to attest to that. Um, and that hasn't changed either. No, But, you know, it, it's interesting listening to this. And one of the things that has frustrated me about the conversation, so I, I have two roles. So, so I run the national governing body for Olympic sports and track and field, and then I own a NASCAR team. And I got involved in NASCAR when Mickey and I originally, we represented Reggie White in the NFL. Reggie was one of my best friends, he retired, got down to Charlotte, North Carolina, and he said, Max, there are so many opportunities for women and people of color in NASCAR. I'm like, you're calling a black dude with a Jewish name, tell him to be in NASCAR. There are no opportunities <laughs> for women and people of color in NASCAR. Uh, so, we, so Reggie, Ronnie Lott, Eddie DeBarlo, myself, we went out to buy a team. We found one, we were going to make the announcement it's gonna be the first majority minority-owned race team, <clears throat> and then Reggie passed away. So we let that go. I was on the global management team at Sony in New York. And then a year later, you know, we had met all these owners, Teresa Earnhardt called me. And she was the only female owner in the sport. There's no way she would ever hire a black guy to be the president of global operations for her race team. I flew down there much like Ndidi. She had interviewed 72 people and offered me the job on the spot. And her motivation at the time was she was innovative. She wanted someone in entertainment. She loved licensing. And I was scared to death. And so I actually called Tony Dungy, uh, who's a mentor of mine. I said, listen, coach, I said, look, I have this opportunity. I can stay at Sony. I can go down to NASCAR. And he said, tell me what's going on. And it literally was a year they won the Super Bowl. I called him on Friday night. I'm like, you might be a little busy right now, (laughs) but if you can call me back, it'd be great. He called me. They played the Patriots. Uh, and he said, listen, Max, there's, it's rare that you get an opportunity to impact an organization and industry and culture. And when you do, I think that God is using you to make a difference. So I went down there, not, there there were no, no people of color ever in the history of that organization at work. There's 600 employees, $200 million a year for a race team. And we had such an incredible connection around things that they were passionate about. Winning, going fast, and, and, you know, And it was a platform for me when you find something that you're passionate about, you get to talk about things that you may not do in everyday life. The other thing that I picked up, you know, we started having success on the track. We started, you know, generating more revenue. And when those things have a positive impact on people's lives, they listen to you in a matter that's a little bit different. So for me, it was all about having credibility and making an impact, which gave me the permission to have the conversation. And then what I said was if I ever gotten an opportunity where I could hire then I had to lead by example. So we've held on to this race team for 14 years. Uh, you know, all the George Floyd stuff happened, but Bubba Wallace and Kyle Larson and Daniel Suarez, they all drove for me when they were 14 years old. And we, you know, we stayed the course to make sure that an industry now that realizes that diversity is good for the business is, you know, is, is an important priority. Now, we brought those same things. I brought those same principles. When I came to USA Track and Field 10 years ago, we hadn't had a new sponsor in 11 years. We had the worst Olympic performance in in uh, in, in Beijing. Uh, it was terrible. There were two people of color in the entire organization with the most diverse sport in the Olympic movement. Right now, there's there's my COO and I are the only two black C-suite executives in the entire Olympic movement right now. But we were intentional to hire the best people and have a diverse staff. And that means diversity of thought, diversity of life experience. And we just recently, over the last few years, the best athletic success in the history of the organization, the half a billion dollar deal with Nike, the most success that we've had as an organization, and I give it all to having a diverse team uh, that help you solve problems, that really help you think about things in a very different manner. So, so, so the one message I'm gonna say to everyone, you do have a difference to impact the way that people think. But as you become successful and you move up in your career, and as Mickey said, you have influence, I think, you know, you should take it seriously. It's important to create those opportunities, Uh, because I knew when I started the race team, if I didn't own the race team, the chances of a black or minority or woman driver getting in a car that didn't have the access or the resource to do it were slim to none. And so for me, you know, I appreciate the work that everybody up here does. Uh, because it is important. But the one thing I'll say as I look through across the panel consistently is you have people who are quality executives. It's not because they're female. It's not because we're minority executives. You know, the people up here on the stage impact the organization in a positive way. And so, um, you know, I, I'm just thrilled and honored to be up here with my panelists because I know what they do every day. But I just like to encourage anyone that if you have the opportunity to make a difference, please do it.
3: Let me just grab the mic
4: right quick because I was there for a lot of that stuff and Max is being a little
3: bit modest. I will say that one of the things that I've always admired and one of the ways that my big, big brother here has always uh, had a strong influence upon me is that this is a person who has always sought out uh, big challenges, not just little ones. With most of his career choices he's made, he's had the courage to bet on himself and to take on big challenges. Uh, when he went to NASCAR, he said he was nervous, and anybody would be. It was a it, it was a huge job. It was a controversial job. But I'll tell you, I was working at Time Warner at the time, and my boss um, knew you know knew about Max and I, and, and about my background uh, and our association. That was that was kind of my first foray um, coming out of our business and going you know, going into corporate America. Uh, and, um, and I told him about Max and NASCAR. And he said to me, he's a white guy, and he said, oh, my gosh. He's like, how does Max feel about going into NASCAR? That's like rednecks and it's nothing but, you know, Southern white people. And I said, you know, this, is, this may surprise you, but you've looked at it the exact wrong way. I said, Max is very used to being around uh, a whole bunch of people that aren't like him. And and he's very used to being the only person in the room who looks like him. The real question is, how is NASCAR going to feel about Max? (laughs) That was the real question. And so, you know, while he can talk about his trepidation going in, I can tell you uh, that uh, this man has, you know, and you've heard just a little bit. And you're probably thinking, "Wow, think what are all these jobs that this guy's done in all these areas." It's because he's had the confidence to always bet on himself, uh, and when you do that, um, I I think you will be shocked at what you can accomplish. Uh, and certainly, I haven't been shocked at what he's been able to accomplish, or indeed either. Uh, and you know, just the two people that I've been closest to over the years. So that's 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 just what I wanted to add about his journey. Yeah,
2: and. and- I think we could talk about Dee and I listen for hours. But I just wanted to add one more thing, if, if you guys don't mind, is, um, you talked a little bit, I think, Mickey, about minds. And, and I'll tell you my philosophy is, I'm not worried about changing anyone's mind. I'm really not. Children, different, different story. I'm worried about people's behaviors people's actions and execution, because I think ultimately that changes minds. And when we think about things that Max has done, that's exactly what he's done, right? And it's all intentional. It's intentionally reaching back. It's executing. It's it's excellent product. You can't argue that. And and, and when you're the first, you know, black CEO of a NASCAR team and and you kill it, you can't deny the next one. So I think that when we're in these roles and we're in these positions, number one, you got to be excellent and you got to execute. And I just think it's it's about action for me much more than it is about people's minds.
1: I really appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that I loved about, about this conversation is not one person has talked about DEI as like being the right thing to do. Like if we have to have a conversation about this is the right thing to do, then we, we're not ready for, for, for what's next. You talked about how DEI drives business, how it, how it is the right thing for the business. It's the right thing for innovation. It's the right thing for, for driving revenue. So I appreciate, um, you all, um, sharing that. And so I'm going to switch gears a little bit and kick it back over to, to rocket here because, you know, when I came on Notre Dame's campus in 2004, Tyrone Williham was, was the head coach. Um, and he is, to my recollection, the only Notre Dame head coach not to have been given his full first contract. He was let go after after three years. And so I was here during the, the campus demonstrations and conversations and uh, real uncomfortable times. Um, now, fast forward, we have Coach Freeman, um, which I can honestly say I, I never thought that that was something that was going going to happen again. And so I want to you know, get your perspective on on what it's like to to now have Coach Freeman, you know, in the fold. How how did you feel when he was was hired? Um, and, and how do you feel having that representation now?
6: Well, uh, one thing that I've I've learned to do and I'm learning how to to continue to do it is to on topics that can be triggering in some instances, whether it's me or people who are in the particular environment, is to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to to get emotional one way or the other. And so when Coach Kelly ended up going down to LSU, I was like stunned, I was like, okay, wait a minute. And it was just like, I just got quiet And then I remembered when Coach Kelly hired Marcus from Cincinnati, which it seemed strange at the time, but he was like, you know, I just hired the next head coach of Notre Dame University. And it was the young up-and-coming defensive coordinator out of Cincinnati. And I was just like, huh, okay, that perhaps was – it turned out to be prophetic. And so with that understanding – and then when he was hired, it was just like, okay, Lord, this this is how I look at things. I I take try to take a different view of it than what a lot of times the media does because I've learned the hard way that when I take the perspective that the media has on topics in our culture, then I tend to have the emotional responses that aren't beneficial for me and my peace. So that was the initial perspective but then once the season started and they had us ranked number five I was like okay these cats are trying to set us up because in my mind after you know meeting the coaching staff and watching the actual the team and just seeing what was set up just from a football pure football perspective I was like we might be that the highest I would rank us at like 15. Like that was just how I was like. Fifteen is right where we're probably we're out in our wheelhouse, right there. Anything higher than that is a setup. Anything lower than that is disrespectful. So, uh, <laughs> the that that so that so my expectations about that were were, were I, I was I'm smooth. I was like, okay, the first year, look, you need a star quarterback. You need some. I mean, in this the type of game that we have now, if your quarterback's not a star or close to a star, or can at least get out of trouble and run like a star, then it's going to be tough hauling. And then the only reason I said top 15, because I felt like, okay, our front seven, just the interior linemen, linebackers, our front seven is solid. And I felt like with a solid group and with, with above average coaching, they can, be a problem for people. So I was like, okay, I didn't expect Marshall to happen. But when I looked at why, well, but when I say this, I, I look at it like this. I'm like, there's, we're not a good enough team to beat ourselves, which is turnovers and the other team at the same time. Now, if we had a couple of other factors on the field, I'm like, oh yeah, we can, we can overcome that. But right now, you just make, that's like an insurmountable, uh, task at the moment so I am pleasant in my demeanor I'm, I want us to win every game I know that's not something that is probably going to happen and I just I just look for the improvement over time and it was interesting when you talked about Tyrone Willingham because I remember we had just finished the ESPN shoot and it was Utah and BYU and I Flew in from Utah, did an appearance here locally in town, and I came over and just, just was shooting the breeze with the coach. And so we were talking, and so we had a plan. As we started talking, he's like, hey man, I want you to come in this summer, and I want you to help the receivers and this, that, and other. I was like, yeah man, this, this, that, other, whatever. So we had this plan together, and that was like, uh, Sunday, and I fly home, and then I guess the next day they, they, they fired him, and then I was like, oh, it like it shocked my system. And I was like, wow. And and then, but I was very angry. And I was like, my first response was, man, they why they do this to the brother. They ain't let other people have a chance the same as they should give him the same chance they gave everybody else. And I was just like, ah, oh, because well, I was still young. And the next show, we were in Atlanta, and I couldn't I could control my emotions. I didn't want to control my emotions. And we were on the set, and they asked the question, and they were just like, um, so for me, my grandmother told me when you do something wrong, or if someone does something wrong, the next step is to repent. You just, you, you're doing wrong. The repent is in action, just turn and go the other way. And so when they asked me on the set, bro, I got biblical on them cats. I was like, hey, hey. <laughs> I don't know about the next coach or whatever, but they said, like, what does Notre Dame need to do right now? I'm like, man, Notre Dame needs to repent. <laughs> this is wrong. Somebody help me. No. <laughs> so, so so it was like those are my two cons- perspectives. And I'm a little uh I, I'm a little more seasoned now. So um with Marcus, uh I'm pleasantly surprised. But now I'm I'm also not the guy that just because somebody's black that they need to be the coach. Because I know what it's like man when you don't if somebody isn't doesn't have the um the acumen if 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 they don't have the the skill set but they look the part man that's almost worse so I don't like that either so I'm just saying I I feel like we're good and I feel like he had, and I and I, for me this one of the smartest moves was the fact because he looked shook that dog on ball game man he was on the sidelines uh-oh This cat boy, this is fish out of water time. But I love that he went out and got another head coach. He went out and got Al Golden, who just came off a Super Bowl, uh, run with the the Bengals, who was a former head coach in college. And is at, so I was like, all right, yes, he has to have somebody on the staff who can come in. And he's older and he can come in and say, okay, look, this is how we look at it. This is how we do it. This is how we handle this. This is how we go forth. Just being in that position before, you need a mentor, somebody that been there before, you know, so. I think all the ingredients are in place. Everything is, is set perfectly for him to be able to succeed and just pump the brakes if anybody's out here panicking or like, oh, he's, gotta, he's not he's going to be here much longer. No, just relax. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine.
4: So, so I'm, I'm going to give you a parent's perspective well, because my son just graduated and played here. And uh, I'm going to tell you what's interesting when you look at Rockets era and you had Coach Holtz, there was a culture that was built a culture of excellence, and there was a culture where people's lives were transformed while they were playing. So I don't think that you should ever sacrifice excellence, but I remember when my son got the news that he was going to be the head coach, and I found that it's hard sometimes to transition from being an assistant or position coach to being a head coach at the same institution because you have a different kind of relationship with your players. Um, But I can tell you that all the offensive linemen, they were all ecstatic. And so for me, I'm looking at what does college athletics really stand for? Yeah, you want to win championships, which is critical to keep your job. But at the same time, do you come out of a program a much better person for the rest of your life than when you went into it? And I struggle with that. And I have a daughter that plays Division One volleyball. So so, you know, uh, so what I think about the coach right now is we got to give him enough time to build his culture, to put his team together and, and, and make this the place. I mean, he's proven that he can recruit. You know, and I think that we'll have the talent here. But I just ask people to have some grace uh, in giving him an opportunity to establish what his football program should look like. Yes,
1: that's, it. Yeah, that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, and so, you know, when we were, you know, I had a, a prep call for this this panel with uh Jakeem and, and Max. And I will say that we spent 90 percent of the conversation talking about what I want to talk to you about right now. Jonathan, is that that Rooney rule? And so this, this transitions really nicely, you know, into that. And so
5: yeah.
1: one, I want you to just explain what the Rooney rule is for those who, who may not know. Uh, but, but my real question, <laughs> the, the real question that we were debating was, does it work?
5: Yeah. Again, uh, another good question. I, I would say just for the, the Rooney rule and for those that, um, don't, don't know what it is, uh, the Rooney rule, is was initiated in it was created in 2002. Was initiated in the 2003 season. The reason why was there were two coaches at the time that were let go, even though their uh, team had a, a good record. And also, when you looked at overall the number of black head coaches in the league, it was really low. And so at the time, you had Johnny Cochran and Myra Syrie. I think my uh Cyrus Cyrus Money. Cyrus Money. Cyrus Mary Cyrus Mary sorry uh they had threatened uh legal action and so uh, what happened was they actually got together with um with league officials and the commissioner uh, to actually talk about this uh, as a result um uh Dan Rooney um was the real initiator of what we call the Rooney Rule. And at that time, what it said was that whenever there is a head coach opening, that uh, there was the requirement that at at least one person that was gonna be considered be a black candidate. And what do we call that today? But if you look at it broader, it simply is a diverse slate. And so now when you look at diverse slates, which are initiated in in academic institutions, uh, corporations around the world, um, a nonprofit organization. We talk, I mean, it's, uh, we, it's the idea of ensuring that you provide access and opportunity for roles uh, by basically requiring that you have people from a variety of different backgrounds. Of course, now it, it's more inclusive. It's not just um, black men, but for, in the, in the corporate world and for the larger world, it includes women and it c- includes other diverse individuals as well. It's about providing access and opportunity. Let's go back to where we are today. We've now evolved the Rooney rule to um, make it better. And what we've done is instead of for coordinator positions, head coach and GM, uh, we require at least two external minority candidates. Uh, and that could be a woman and or a person of color to be in that diverse slate when there's a head coach, GM, or coordinator opening. Uh, we also have now included QB coach to be a part of that. The idea behind the Rooney Rule is not about the results, the, the actual decision. What the Rooney Rule does is it provides that, again, an access and opportunity to compete for a position to ensure that we all broaden the realm of candidates that you will consider, to ensure that you're not just digging in your own hole to find the person that might be good for that role. Uh, I am a believer that the Rooney Rule is extremely helpful, not only at the National Football League, but every other organization that chooses to do a diverse late. I am also a believer that it's not enough. We have to do way more than the Rooney rule. And that's unfortunately what happens is people have this thought that the Rooney rule has it equals um, ensures that a person of color gets hired for the role. That's not what it's built for. It's built to make sure that you are allowed to get into a room to show the person that's making the decision that you are fantastic and you're the right person for the role. It does not stop bias. It does not stop uh, side connections of saying, oh my gosh, I had a great golfing outing with this person. I just love this person. It doesn't stop all that other thing, uh, all the other things which prevent equity. What it does is provide access and opportunity. So then, what are the other things we need to do? We need to make sure that we provide opportunities for people to get to know each other as human beings. So what we had, we have what we call an accelerator program, which we did for the first time. We had some of the strongest candidates and and uh, front office and head coach meeting with all the primary owners. First time we've ever done that in the National Football League. Bring the humanness to opportunities. So then they're saying, oh, my gosh, I know Eric Biennemi. I know his philosophy. I know his personality. This is someone I can connect with because I've met him in a non-formal way, which is really... Uh, you really don't get to know someone if you're, if you're interviewing them for the first time. Uh, we, we try to come up with other ways of slowing down the hiring cycle. Right now it's hurry, 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 get that coach. We wanna, we wanna make that slower. Um, so you have to come up with other creative ways that's best for your industry. And so for us, we, we have the frustration, cause I do believe, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic that you have a black head coach here. And I think that means everything. Because you know how many we unfortunately don't have that in many major schools today. Um, so that there, that is important, but let the, the coach has to perform, but we also have to give black coaches and diverse coaches the same leeway that other coaches have been given historically. And we, and, and we also have to give that grace and let the, let him build his team and just as we would if we were in that position allow him to create that philosophy and 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 get the right the players that he wants to then create the results that Notre Dame is is used to so for me there are many and we've had we've had many players and we've had many coaches and we've had others that have been very critical of the Rooney rule but i think what that is about is not fully understanding what the what the Rooney Rule can do, or what a diverse slate can do. It does not go, it, at the end of the day, we still have to work on the decision maker. And that is training, bias training. That's the human human connection, getting to know people before the opportunity is even available, and other creative ways to ensure that there is equity in the process for everybody.
3: If I could just comment quickly that, you know, and, and you know, I agree with everything he said, John, you know, it's uh, you know, I think that um, the Rooney rule has never been the problem. Right. Obviously not. Right. I think that if you want to look at sports like football or basketball and you draw a comparison with corporate America, um, what I've learned, at least at, at the companies that I have that I've been at um Is that just telling leaders in positions that they need to have a diverse slate um, is is sometimes kind of a trap door for them because there are lots of roles where they're not where people literally don't know how to find people from diverse backgrounds who can do those jobs, right? I mean, I'm on the global diversity council at our company, and I've and that's made up of a bunch of the leaders, uh, and the division heads of our company. And it's kind of a safe space where we can talk about issues and it's, and it's diverse executives and it's white executives and it's, you know, female executives. And we get in a space where, you know, people feel comfortable saying, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I want to hire more, a uh, uh, diverse candidates. I don't know where to find them. You know, I'm in, I'm in, you know, I make movies, and I need certain kind of camera operators. I don't know where to find diverse candidates to fill a slate, right? And so, you know, we have to work on figuring out how to solve that problem. Because it isn't fair to then ding that person, just say, you have to hire a diverse slate. And then they don't, and they're like, well, you're a bad executive. It's like, well, you know what? Let's let's try to figure out how we can un, un, unpack that, right? One of the troubling and frustrating things as you know, obviously, for the NFL, is that the NFL is what's the percentage of African Americans playing in the league?
5: So we have a little over probably 70%. Probably 70%.
3: So why the Rooney rule, at least I think is a lightning rod, is that in the NFL, there's no shortage of black people who are part of the sport and have spent their lives playing that sport and studying that sport. And so people have you know, kind of cognitive dissonance understanding why that doesn't translate into more senior executives and coaches and other roles, and I think that's why the Rooney
4: Rule gets beaten up so much. So, so, so not that not Mickey off, but I'm gonna nope. cut Mickey off. Nope. Uh, no, uh, you know what's interesting listening to this is that you know what? Here's the reality: the, the beyond the fact that indeed asked me to join the Rise Board, I got on the board for a simple reason that the NFL is not like. Not much different than most sports. Huge brand, multi-billion dollar industry. They're small family businesses. There are 32 or 30, 30 billionaires that control it. So it's not the same as General Motors where you have all this corporate compliance and this, you know, reliance on, you know, public perception. It is some, but you're trying to convince 32 billionaires that it's important to hire people of color to make their lives and their business better. And so, so as, interesting as a human being, as Stephen Ross is, uh, the one thing that was fascinating to me is it was really simple. And it came after he had problems with the Miami Dolphins. And he said, listen, sports is a unifier and we have to get with people and change their mindset at a young age. So how do we use this platform to improve race relations? Right. And so he made a comment in a meeting one time, which is fascinating to me. And he said, I'm desperately trying to have it wasn't like like my friends, but but my colleagues and peers at the country club understand the importance of diversity and inclusion. And so, to me, to influence the influencers is really critical. But the techniques, and you know, I mentioned NASCAR because look, when I went to Dale and her Incorporated, my first idea was we're going to do Dale the movie, and it was a DVD, it was a documentary about Dale Senior, who, you know, his anniversary of his death, he was the most popular. Richard Childress and Teresa Earnhardt did it. It was the most successful DVD, sports DVD in the history that was sold. They split a check for millions of millions of dollars, and I became Richard's grandson or godson, you know. And so for me, you know, they were passionate about a project, but they saw how my skill set could enhance their life, which caused them to think differently. So I'm going to go back to Ndidi. You know, it, it is when you, you know, the attitude takes a longer time to affect You know, behavior you can kind of affect. Uh, Access is really, really important, but it is really kind of like what you were saying, having an owner really get to know somebody on a personal level and deciding that they want to give them a shot, which is much different than, you know, what what, what we do at the corporate level.
2: So I, I want to personalize the Rooney Rule a little bit, just for all of you. So I've been Rooney Ruled, I'll just say that, not at the company I work at now, but in prior companies, when people say they don't know who they don't know, qualified people of color, women, I'm a bonus. You could double with me, right? I'm a woman of color because part of it is you have to be qualified and I can't tell you how many people interviewed me and wanted to interview me and had no intention of hiring me. I was the check the box personally, and it doesn't feel good. Right? And after the third time, I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're calling me, because I'm always open to, when someone wants to call me about a job, I listen. Why not, right? We're all open to conversations. You want to talk to me about a job that you're feeling that's more senior than I am. Let's talk, right? Well, indeed, we want to make it a formal interview. Okay, I'm the check the box. You were never going to hire me, ever hire me. So some people, it's a check the box. And in my opinion, that doesn't work. I mean, clearly it doesn't work. But I also want to humanize the other part of it. When you're the other side of it, when I say that I'm so many times the only one in the room, it's getting better now, I was the only woman of color in the room, so of course they're going to come to me. And I went to, I'm a lawyer from Notre Dame, I'm a... Journalists from Northwestern, of course they're going to come to me. I have everything they want on paper. That's what they have to do. That's required of them. That is the Rooney rule at some of the companies I was at. And it just doesn't feel so good on the other side.
3: That's why we have to, you know, work on access and helping each other get access. I was just sitting there listening to Indeedy and I was thinking about my own career. I don't think that I've taken a job. Um, since the Army where I wasn't hired by someone who who knew me and that I knew. I haven't had, I mean, I've never thought about it up until I'm sitting here on the stage. I've never had, and and I'm an old man, I've never had a job. I've never been hired by any organization that has tapped me just because of my resume or they had an opening and I applied for it. Every single job, other than the Army, and the Army was an ROTC scholarship when I was in college, so that job was already preordained, right? That's the only job I've had where I didn't have someone who knew me, I had access to them, and they knew that they wanted me, and I knew that I wanted them. Every single job.
2: So after my experiences, I stopped. And and from that point on, I would only take meetings and only put my name in after I spoke to someone and I knew they wanted me and I knew I was going to at least make it to the final round. Like not that I was guaranteed a job, but I knew I was going in for the final round. Otherwise it makes me look bad. Like why can't I close a deal? Like, well, how come I'm not getting the job when, when the job was all, always taken. So to your point, you know, after that happened to me, three, times, that no, three times, that it's a blueprint. Yeah. You
3: know, I'm just, it's just an observation, right. right? I mean, I would hope that we can all apply for jobs that are open and hope that we get a fair shot. And I think that with the work that is being done, um, that that's changing, I, I'm just making an observation uh, that that's not been my own experience. Now, the good news is that I've gotten some good jobs over the years. So, you know, so what we do and if we have access and if we have people who are supporting us and helping us meet people and people putting us down and giving us the opportunity, it's really about opportunity. And then what happens after that, you win some and you lose some, um, but again, I think that Max's point is well taken. Why the NFL a Rooney Rule is such a a hot topic lightning rod is that people look at the at the brown faces in that league, and it's hard to understand why that doesn't translate. And Max has given us, you know, Max and John both have given us reasons why, but it doesn't make us feel any better.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it hits to the core of the issue. Is at the end of the day. What we still need to do a lot of work on is the point of the decision and how we can ensure that that is fair and equitable for everyone. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have gone into an interview knowing that you don't have, you don't have the shot and that never should be the case. What, but one thing I I do have to say, I mean, I remember Tony Dungy said in a meeting that he was in, um, that when he was interviewing with Tampa, um, they were already locked in, uh, on someone else for that role. Um, it was, and, and, you know, there's a good chance, I think what he was saying, I don't want to speak for him, is that, you know, he, he, he was on the slate. He was a Rooney. Um, that person ended up not taking the job. He ended up getting it. And, uh, so that you never know what, how the process is going to turn out. And 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 until we do get that equity, and I don't know how long that will go. That will take for everyone. Um, you know, sometimes we, we have to make that personal decision of, and and everyone here um, listening, of whether you're okay knowing that you may be going into a situation where you may not be getting a fair shot. And I think that's a that's a, a big problem we have in society. Is that's is that. There are times where that doesn't exist, and we got to stop that. And once we can do that, these kind of issues can get resolved.
2: And I I would just add to that—you guys clearly see that this bothered me when it happened to me. But I'm still a proponent of the Rooney Rule because I've seen it work. I've seen it to your point. I've seen um, hiring managers being pleasantly surprised by saying, "Wow, like I, I didn't think this would happen." And that person may still have not gotten that job, but that person got the next job. So it's, it is access. It's getting in front of somebody and impressing someone. And and quite frankly, if they have um, very low expectations, it's pretty easy to impress people when they're not expecting anything. So um, so I I am a proponent of it a hundred percent. Um, although just not me. <laughs> and shock us, right? Don't make
3: I TV the interview.
2: And that <laughs> and that shouldn't
3: shock us, right? I mean, like the whole point is that. There are barriers, and so barriers aren't, you know, kind of the very definition of it is the barriers aren't easy to overcome. So there's a certain level of, of resilience that we all have to have and that, you know, people who are in the African-Americans who are in the coaching profession have to have. If it's something that they really want, then they've got to keep going back over and over again and plan, again, bet on themselves and bet on their talent and hope that there's that that but connection that they make and, you know, um, and, and that it happens for them. Uh, but. And, and see um, you
1: know, I, I echo, you know, the, the words that, that everyone up here has, has said, and indeed one of the things that you, that you just said is one of the reasons why I'm a, I'm a fan of, of the rule as a component. I'm not a fan of the rule as a solve, but as a component, because if you start speaking to people of different backgrounds, you could be pleasantly surprised. And so you could change the mind. Also, it's more shots at the basket. And so, you know, you take a guy like Eric Enemy, we hear about him all of the time because he's interviewing everywhere. I remember my first interview when I was in law school, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to answer the questions. I had no idea what questions were, were, going, were going to come up. But the more I interviewed, I was better prepared for that. And so if you can't get into the room to get interviewed, you can't be prepared to actually pass the test. And so that's one of the things that I, that I like and appreciate about the Rooney Rule. But one thing that I wanna uh, shift a little bit of the focus here is we talked about the mindset of an employer, but we have not talked about the mindset of someone who's looking to get the job. Everyone I knew growing up wanted to be a professional athlete. None of them thought about doing the jobs that we have because we didn't know people that were, were doing these jobs. And so I just want to take a, a quick second here to you know, talk to the panelists about like, how, did you, how did you get here? And so for a student who's here today, who's thinking about getting into sports and, and entertainment, like how, how, how do we navigate that? How can these students lean on your experience and, and leverage us to, to help create these opportunities?
4: So I'll start with Max. So <clears throat> Dwight King launched my... Look, Dwight... Legal research and legal. Yeah, Dwight's in there. Hey, Dwight. Uh, No, I I think there are a number of things I I would. I was sitting up here thinking the same thing. I agree with Mickey. I think the uh, only job that I got without knowing someone was right out of law school from here. Um, I think, first of all, I'm always saying that any discipline you can find in a traditional Business you can find in sports, so it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a tax lawyer, litigator, marketer. You know, I have physicians that work for me. Anything you can think of, they all work within my organization. So the first thing I think you have to do is you have to develop a substantive skill. And I think a lot of people up here said excellence because at the end of the day, you know, sports and entertainment, it's business, and you want people who can impact your organization. So the second thing for me is really you got to you got to build a network. Um, and, and, you know, you got to have all those things. You got to be resilient. You got to be persistent. I don't think, you know, these are my friends and I may have to call them three or four times to get them on the phone because anybody who's worth talking to is not going to be sitting around waiting for your phone call. So uh, they got stuff to do. So you shouldn't get your feelings hurt if you call several, two, three, four, five times and you don't get through. Um, the network is critically important because, you know, when you get a bunch of paper on your desk, you'd be surprised. There's, there's one young man that, that I'm getting ready to hire for an internship. I went to a conference down in Atlanta and I'm so antiquated. I, I, he, I asked him for his card and he pulled out this blink, this little QR code on his phone. And so I was, yeah, yeah, I, I was fascinated, you know, uh, realized that I was antiquated, but, uh, you know, but he wound up falling up with me and I remembered what happened when I met him. You know, so that personal relationship is really important. But I do want to say for the people that hear you cannot underestimate the power of the Notre Dame network. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. If someone has a Notre Dame affiliation on their resume or something when they call me, I'm going to take I, I'm, I'm going to at least take a second look. Uh, you know, there's a 90 percent chance I'm going to call back and try to figure it all out. Um, but most importantly, as Miggy said, I think you've got to look for opportunities. There two, two things. I think you gotta look for opportunities within an organization that your skill set can make an impact. And then you gotta demonstrate to people the qualities and the intangibles that you have. I'm sorry, I gotta tell a story. So there, there was, I produced this TV show with uh, MTV Networks. And there was a young woman who, um, evidently had been trying to get with me for like a couple years for a job opportunity. So my assistant, we had like a production assistant role. And she came on the set, and we shot this series. And she was so impressed the staff. She came to me, and I got to know her through this set. And she had a master's degree, and she wanted to get in sports. And I said, listen, the only job that I have available for you right now, uh, it's a receptionist. It's like $7 an hour. And she's like, I'll take it. So she came in every day, and she worked that job like you know, this was her dream job. And so we had an open house at the race team. And her mother came in. And her mother pulled me aside. And let me have it. How dare you? My daughter has a master's degree from a top university and she just undressed me. And I and I said, listen, you're family. So with all due respect, please don't screw up your daughter's blessing and have this conversation with anybody ever again. I don't care if she's got a law degree, a Ph.D. She doesn't know crap about what I'm trying to teach. I'm looking for work ethic. I'm looking for chemistry. I'm looking for those character traits. I'm looking for someone who can come into my organization that will fit in with my team and we can develop. And those intangible qualities that people demonstrate when you meet them are things that you think about when you're trying to hire somebody. So, you know, the network, the substantive skills, you got to be resilient. You got to demonstrate those intangible qualities and you got to figure out a way to impact. The last thing I'll say with all the research you can do right now, it is quite impressive to know a little bit about the person that you're talking to. Uh, you know, it's easy to find out information, but we're all human beings too, sitting on the other side of the desk. So when you come in, I mean, you know, asking about our day, our children, our whatever, that's really helpful. But, you know, and the last thing I'll say is please don't lead an interview talking about what a fan of sports you are. Um, you got to have passion for the industry. We don't really necessarily need fans. So anyway, I'm sorry. Big facts. Mickey, <laughs> you know, honestly, uh you know, point of entry. I,
3: I always tell people that. um how I slash we got started is not really any kind of blueprint um, for anybody other than some of the things Max has hit upon. Um, we talked when we were here about what got us up in the morning, assuming that we were going to actually graduate and actually pass the bar. Um, what we wanted to do with that with that degree. Um, and we both had talked about having a passion in sports and in media. Um, and we just decided that we were going to do it. We didn't really know how we didn't know uh, what to do exactly. There was no blueprint. It certainly wasn't any class that we took here. Um, but we did know that we had to work hard at it in the same way that we knew that we had to work hard here as students and to uh, prepare ourselves in the best way that we could for going out there and uh, becoming lawyers. We knew that we had to have some skill set, some expertise that somebody wanted to pay us for, right? We knew that we didn't catch balls. We didn't run fast. We weren't going to do those. Well, I was probably fast. We were probably faster then. But um <laughs> we knew that our skill set and that the only way we were going to have people take us seriously was to get really good at something. And so we just were hoping that if we did that, and we knew what we wanted to do and, and knew what we had a passion for, that we would be ready for opportunities. Uh, and some opportunities you can help, help create and some just fall in your lap. And we had some of each. Uh, and so there's no real blueprint, but that's the best way that I can put it is that when those opportunities that we either created or that fell in our laps, we were ready and, you know, we were prepared. There was nobody who was going to out outwork us. Uh, we were going to be prepared for every interview, every, every opportunity to sign a client or to get in front of someone and to try to sell them on what we thought that we could do for them. And it kind of sort of worked out for us. So, I mean, that's, that's not a great answer, but that's, that's the real deal.
2: Um, so I would say I, I took the path less, less taken, I guess. Um, my passion was sports, and um, I'm sorry, Dean Cole, but I could take law or not. Right? My passion was sports. I wanted to get into sports, and I wanted very—I wanted some very specific locations, some very specific sports. So for me, that mattered a little bit more than um, my expertise because I thought I. I'm pretty well rounded and I could do a lot, and as an entry level person, I mean it's not going to be rocket science, so I'll figure out how to do the job. but let me get there first and um when I was a third year, last student i had um I interviewed it with firms, like everybody does. I had an offer this was a long time ago, six figures, and I had an internship offer for the n c a in Overland Park, Kansas. It was that long ago it wasn't an indie for $18,000, and I took the internship, right? So people really thought I lost my mind. Um, but for me, I followed my passion, and I knew it would work. I knew it would work. I waited tables at night. These guys <laughs> knew me back then. I mean, I, I got the question, well, you must be here because you didn't pass the bar. No, I passed the bar. First time, California. It was an intentional, it was intentional, and I just knew I was going to bet on myself. I'm like, I'm going to get in here. I'm used to being a poor college student. It's one more year. I'm going to bet on myself. And, um, when I, less than a year, I had offers left and right at most, most athletic departments. I was, you know, I was a black woman who played softball. And by the way, while, while, while I was in law school, I was an assistant coach on the softball team here. So I coached. I was a lawyer who passed the bar and I worked at the NCA and had relationships with the NCA. Like, Who wouldn't hire me, right? So that was my sort of, you know, strategy is follow my passion, get to know people, do a really good job. Um, and you know, all a lot of my friends now at the NCA, they're, they're athletic directors, literally like everywhere at all the major, at all the major athletic departments. And I can pick up the phone at any time from my one year that I was an intern at the NCA, because when I was an intern, I was at everything. I was networking. I was doing this, doing that. So I would say I definitely took a different route and, um, it probably was a more difficult route, but so my advice to all of you is follow your passion and do it while you're young. It's so much harder to follow your passion. And and most of the time when you follow your passion, you're going to make less money. That's just the reality. So it's very difficult to do that when you're in a mortgage and you have children and you have all this. Um, and then I'm going to go back to the, to your comment about the fan thing too. Max, that's the first, if someone says they're a fan, they are out. A hundred percent. Because when they say they're a fan, I say, buy a ticket. That's not what we do. We don't watch games. That's not what we do. <laughs> we, we, we are, we're running business. We're running businesses. And when we watch a game, trust me, we're not watching the game for the game. We're watching the game for I'm watching the game. It's like, did our announcer say something wrong? What was wrong with that camera? What was wrong with that shot? Oh my god, did we did we not did we not go to commercial at the right time? What kind of call am I gonna get? That's how I watch the game, which annoys my husband. Um, <laughs> it's very hard to watch a game. But again, we are not we are not here to to be fans. And I do enjoy being a fan every now and then and, and I get a ticket and I go in and I enjoy it. So this is a business at the end of the day, and also DEI is a business at the end of the day
5: everything it 's it's, it's wonder i 'll have conversations like this because a lot of times you 're so busy you just don 't have time to to do this so it 's almost like feel like we 're having coffee chatting and but um, i I would say I came from uh, upper middle class family my father was orthodontist first orthodontist in North Carolina. My mom's an educator had a lot of access I had no clue I had zero clue of how to get into media entertainment and sports but that is has always been my passion. you know I played uh, college football I played college tennis, um, college you know tennis football basketball my whole life. Uh, that's what I care about. I love movies. I love TV shows, all of that. Uh, but I, I didn't think it, it was, I had a place. I didn't see anything that was welcoming to me, and so anybody that looked like me. Uh, but I had, I mean, a dream, but it d- didn't have that. For me, so for me, it's a little bit different because I always perceive myself to be a fan. But I'm, I'm going to say how I agree with the uh, Ndidi when I, as I get, get more into it. What I mean by that is, um, so I started as an avid fan of, of the NFL, of the NBA, um, of the USTA. Um, that's, that's just who I am. And my wife surely knows that. And, uh, so for me, I just went, I said, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to get that business degree so I can really, um, you know, thrive in a large business environment when I realized I I just completely uh, didn't like it. Then I, I held on to my passion, and and I think there was a, just a lot of luck. I almost felt like I, I fell into it, and then I, I had this opportunity, and I got a little lucky through connections, and I got into media, and that was it. Um, after I got into media, I just wanted... If it if it if it's media, entertainment, or sports, I'm all in because that's what I do. That's just what I love. I am a fan, but I will tell you, once you become a part of the business, you will no longer look at it the same. Uh, I love football, uh, but I can't look at it. it's kind of sad, right? But I can't look at the game the same way because I've been in the in the back conversations. I know how the business is run. Um, it's, it's different, it's different, but it's okay because it's a wonderful industry to be in and we need more of you in it. So we really, this is, this is an. that I didn't feel like the opportunity was there when I was, you know, 20 years old or, te- you know, but there is now we are dying for great diverse talent, talent as a whole, But the point is now we're inviting and welcoming diverse talent where before that was not the case. So this is a wonderful time. If you are into this and you want to be engaged, if you want it, you'll get it. There's way too many opportunities out there. So take, take advantage and it's okay. You might look at the games a little bit different, but don't worry. You're still, you're still going to be inspired. You're still gonna cheer. Um, but it, it, you are going to look at it differently. So.
1: so before I pass it off to to our host to, to close us out, I just want to thank you guys for, for sharing um, your perspectives. This was great. And I want to thank the audience for listening in on our, uh, as Jonathan said, our coffee chat uh, that we would have had if y'all weren't here anyway. So... <laughs> So thank y'all.
0: And that's it. Thank you again to our amazing group of panelists who came together to talk about DEI in sports and entertainment. Max Siegel is CEO of US Track and Field. Jonathan Bean is Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the NFL. Indidi Massey is Vice President of Workplace Culture and Diversity Initiatives at CBS Sports. Rocket Ishmael is former wide receiver in the NFL, and Mickey Carter is executive vice president of US Networks Distribution at Paramount Global. Thanks also goes out to Jackie Wilson, our moderator, who's chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer for the Brooklyn Nets, New York Liberty, and the Barclays Center. This podcast is produced by Notre Dame Studios. Tune in for our next episode, where we'll sit down with Dr. Kevin Coakley, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, whose research focuses include the imposter phenomenon and the psychological factors impacting academic achievements in students of color. We'll talk about his latest publication, Lawyering While Black, perceived stress as a mediator of imposter feelings, race-related stress, and mental health among black attorneys.